Conclusion of Sovereignty of God. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by K. Hand. Sovereignty of God by Arthur Pink. Conclusion. Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Revelation 19.6. In our foreword to the second edition, we acknowledge the need for preserving the balance of truth. Two things are beyond dispute. God is sovereign. Man is responsible. In this book we have sought to expound the former. In our other works we have frequently pressed the latter. That there is real danger of overemphasizing the one and ignoring the other, we readily admit. Yea, history furnishes numerous examples of cases of each. To emphasize the sovereignty of God without also maintaining the accountability of the creature tends to fatalism. To be so concerned in maintaining the responsibility of man as to lose sight of the sovereignty of God is to exalt the creature and dishonor the Creator. Almost all doctrinal error is really truth perverted, truth wrongfully divided, truth disproportionately held and taught. The fairest face on earth, with the most comely features, would soon become ugly and unsightly if one member continued growing while the others remained undeveloped. Beauty is primarily a matter of proportion. Thus it is with the word of God. Its beauty and blessedness are best perceived when its manifold wisdom is exhibited in its true proportions. Here is where so many have failed in the past. A single phase of God's truth has so impressed this man, or that, he has concentrated his attention upon it, almost to the exclusion of everything else. Some portion of God's word has been made a pet doctrine, and often this has become the distinctive badge of some party. But it is the duty of each servant of God to declare all the counsel of God. Acts twenty twenty seven. It is true that the degenerate days in which our lot is cast, when on every side man is exalted, and superman has become a common expression, there is real need for a special emphasis upon the glorious fact of God's supremacy, the more so where this is expressly denied. Yet even here much wisdom is required, lest our zeal should not be according to knowledge. The words meet in due season should ever be before the servant of God. What is needed primarily by one congregation may not be specifically needed by another. If called to labor where Arminian preachers have proceeded, then the neglected truth of God's sovereignty should be expounded, though with caution and care, lest too much strong meat be given to babes. The example of Christ in John 16:12, I have yet many things to say unto you, but ye cannot bear them now, must be borne in mind. On the other hand, if I am called to take charge of a distinctly Calvinistic pulpit, then the truth of human responsibility, in its many aspects, may be profitably set forth. What the preacher needs to give out is not what his people most like to hear, but what they most need, i.e., those aspects of truth they are least familiar with, or least exhibiting in their walk. To carry into actual practice what we have inculcated above will, most probably, lay the preacher open to the charge of being a turncoat. But what matters that if he has his master's approval? He is not called upon to be consistent with himself, nor with any rules drawn up by man. His business is to be consistent with holy writ. And in scripture each part or aspect of truth is balanced by another aspect of truth. There are two sides to everything, even to the character of God, for he is light, 
1 John 1 5, as well as love, 1 John 4 8, and therefore we are called upon to behold therefore the goodness and severity of God, Romans 11:22, To be all the time preaching on the one to the exclusion of the other caricatures the divine character. When the Son of God became incarnate, he came here in the form of a servant, Philemon 2 7. Nevertheless, in the manger, he was Christ the Lord, Luke 2.11. All things are possible with God, Matthew 19.26, yet God cannot lie, Titus 1.2. Scripture says, Bear ye one another's burdens, Galatians 6.2, yet the same chapter insists, Every man shall bear his own burden, Galatians 6.5. We are enjoined to take no thought for the morrow, Matthew 6.34, yet... If any provide not for his own, and specially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith, and is worse than an infidel. 1 Timothy 5.8 No sheep of Christ's can perish. John 10.28.29 Yet the Christian is bidden to make his calling and election sure. 2 Peter 1.10 And so we might go on multiplying illustrations. These things are not contradictions, but complementaries. The one balances the other. Thus the scriptures set forth both the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. So too should every servant of God, and that in their proper proportion. But we return now to a few closing reflections upon our present theme. And Jehoshaphat stood in the congregation of Judah and Jerusalem, in the house of the Lord, before the new court, and said, Lord God of our fathers, art not thou God in heaven? And rulest not thou over all the kingdom of the heathen? And in thine hand is there not power and might, so that none is able to withstand thee? Second Chronicles 20:5-6. Yes, the Lord is God, ruling in supreme majesty and might. Yet in our day, a day of boasted enlightenment and progress, this is denied on every hand. A materialistic science and atheistic philosophy have bowed God out of his own world, and everything is regulated, forsooth, by impersonal laws of nature. So in human affairs, at best God is a far distant spectator, and a helpless one at that. God could not help the launching of the dreadful war, and though he longed to put a stop to it, he was unable to do so, and this in the face of First Chronicles 5.22, Second Chronicles 24.24. Having endowed man with free agency, God is obliged to let man make his own choice and go his own way, and he cannot interfere with him, or otherwise his moral responsibility would be destroyed. Such are the popular beliefs of the day. One is not surprised to find these sentiments emanating from German theologians, but how sad that they should be taught in many of our seminaries, echoed from many of our pulpits, and accepted by many of the rank and file of professing Christians. One of the most flagrant sins of our age is that of irreverence, the failure to ascribe the glory which is due to the august majesty of God. Men limit the power and activities of the Lord in their degrading concepts of his being and character. Originally, man was made in the image and likeness of God, but today we are asked to believe in a God made in the image and likeness of man. The Creator is reduced to the level of the creature. His omniscience is called into question. His omnipotency is no longer believed in and his absolute sovereignty is flatly denied. Men claim to be the architects of their own fortunes and the determiners of their own destiny. They know not that their lives are at the disposal of the divine despot. They know not they have no more power to thwart his secret decrees than a worm has to resist the tread of an elephant. 
they know not that the lord hath prepared his throne in the heavens and his kingdom ruleth over all psalm 103:19 in the foregoing pages we have sought to repudiate such paganistic views as the above mentioned and have endeavored to show from scripture that god is god on the throne and that so far from the recent war being an evidence that the helm had slipped out of his hand it was a sure proof that he still lives and reigns and is now bringing to pass that which he had foredetermined and foreannounced matthew 24 6 through 8 etc that the carnal mind is enmity against god that the unregenerate man is a rebel against the divine government that the sinner has no concern for the glory of his maker and little or no respect for his revealed will is freely granted but nevertheless behind the scenes god is ruling and overruling fulfilling his eternal purpose not only in spite of but also by means of those who are his enemies how earnestly are the claims of man contended for against the claims of god has not man power and knowledge but what of it has god no will or power or knowledge suppose man's will conflicts with god's then what turn to the scripture of truth for answer men had a will on the plains of shinar and determined to build a tower whose top should reach unto heaven but what came of their purpose pharaoh had a will when he hardened his heart and pharaoh refused to allow jehovah's people to go and worship him in the wilderness but what came of his rebellion Balak had a will when he hired Balaam to come and curse the Hebrews, but of what avail was it? The Canaanites had a will when they determined to prevent Israel occupying the land of Canaan, but how far did they succeed? Saul had a will when he hurled his javelin at David, but it entered the wall instead. Jonah had a will when he refused to go and preach to the Ninevites, but what became of it? Nebuchadnezzar had a will when he thought to destroy the three Hebrew children, but God had a will too, and the fire did not harm them. Herod had a will when he sought to slay the child Jesus, and had there been no living, reigning God, his evil desire would have been effected, but in daring to pit his puny will against the irresistible will of the Almighty, his efforts came to naught. Yes, my reader, and you too, had a will when you formed your plans without first seeking the counsel of the Lord, therefore did he overturn them. There are many devices in a man's heart, nevertheless the counsel of the Lord, that shall stand. Proverbs 19:21. What a demonstration of the irresistible sovereignty of God is furnished by that wonderful statement found in Revelation 17:17, 17, 17, "For God hath put in their hearts to fulfill His will, and to agree and give their kingdom unto the beast, until the words of God shall be fulfilled." The fulfillment of any single prophecy is but the sovereignty of God in operation. It is the demonstration that what He has decreed, He is also able to perform. It is proof that none can withstand the execution of his counsel or prevent the accomplishment of his pleasure. It is evidence that God inclines men to fulfill that which he has ordained and perform that which he has foredetermined. If God were not absolute sovereign, then divine prophecy would be valueless, for in such case no guarantee would be left that what he had predicted would surely come to pass. For God hath put in their hearts to fulfill his will, and to agree, and give their kingdom unto the beast, until the words of God shall be fulfilled. Revelation 17:17. 17, 17. We cannot do better than to quote here the excellent comments of our esteemed friend, Mr. Walter Scott, upon this verse. God works unseen, but not the less truly, in all the political changes of the day. The astute statesman, the clever diplomatist, is simply an agent in the Lord's hands. He knows it not. 
self-will and motives of policy may influence to action but god is steadily working toward an end to exhibit the heavenly and earthly glories of his son thus instead of kings and statesmen thwarting god's purpose they unconsciously forward it god is not indifferent but is behind the scenes of human action the doings of the future ten kings in relation to babylon and the beast the ecclesiastical and secular powers are not only under the direct control of god but all is done in fulfillment of his words closely connected with revelation seventeen seventeen is that which is brought before us in micah four eleven and twelve now also many nations are gathered against thee that say let her be defiled and let our eye look upon zion but they know not the thoughts of the lord neither understand they his counsel for he shall gather them as sheaves into the floor this is another remarkable statement inspired of god and three things in it deserve special notice first a day is coming when many nations shall gather against israel with the express purpose of humiliating her second quite unconsciously to themselves for they understand not his counsel they are gathered together by god for he shall gather them third god gathers these many nations against israel in order that the daughter of zion may beat them in pieces verse thirteen here then is another instance which demonstrates god's absolute control of the nations of his power to fulfill his secret counsel or decrees through and by them and of his inclining men to perform his pleasure though it be performed blindly and unwittingly by them once more what a word was that of the lord jesus as he stood before pilate who can depict the scene there was the roman official and there was also the servant of jehovah standing before him said pilate whence art thou and we read jesus gave him no answer then said pilate unto him speakest thou not unto me knowest thou not that i have power to crucify thee and have power to release thee john nineteen ten ah that is what pilate thought that is what many another has thought he was merely voicing the common conviction of the human heart the heart which leaves god out of its reckoning but here the lord jesus as he corrects pilate and at the same time repudiates the proud boasting of men in general thou couldst have no power against me except it were given thee from above john nineteen eleven how sweeping is this assertion man even though he be a prominent official in the most influential empire of his day has no power except that which is given him from above no power even to do that which is evil i e carry out his own evil designs unless god empowers him so that his purpose may be forwarded it was god who gave pilate the power to sentence to death his well-beloved son and how this rebukes the sophistries and the reasonings of men who argue that god does nothing more than permit evil why go right back to the very first word spoken by the lord god to man after the fall and hear him saying i will put enmity between thee and the woman between thy seed and her seed genesis three fifteen bare permission of sin does not cover all the facts which are revealed in scripture touching this mystery as calvin succinctly remarked but what reasons shall we assign for his permitting it but because it is his will at the close of chapter 11 we promise to give attention to one or two other difficulties which were not examined at the time to them we now turn if god has not only predetermined the salvation of his own but has also foreordained the good works which they are to walk in ephesians 2:10 then what incentive remains for us to strive after practical godliness 
if god has fixed the number of those who are to be saved and the others are vessels of wrath fitted to destruction then what encouragement have we to preach the gospel to the lost let us take up these questions in the order of mention one god's sovereignty and the believer's growth in grace if god has foreordained everything that comes to pass of what avail is it for us to exercise ourselves unto godliness first timothy four seven if god has before ordained the good works in which we are to walk ephesians two ten then why should we be careful to maintain good works titus three eight this only raises once more the problem of human responsibility really it should be enough for us to reply god has bidden us do so nowhere does scripture inculcate or encourage a spirit of fatalistic indifference contentment with our present attainments is expressly disallowed the word to every believer is press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of god in christ jesus philippians three fourteen this was the apostle's aim and it should be ours instead of hindering the development of christian character a proper apprehension and appreciation of god's sovereignty will forward it just as the sinner's despair of any help from himself is the first prerequisite of a sound conversion so the loss of all confidence in himself is the first essential in the believer's growth in grace and just as the sinner despairing of help from himself will cast him into the arms of sovereign mercy so the christian conscious of his own frailty will turn to the lord for power it is when we are weak we are strong second corinthians twelve ten that is to say there must be consciousness of our weakness before we shall turn to the lord for help while the christian allows the thought that he is sufficient in himself while he imagines that by mere force of will he shall resist temptation while he has any confidence in the flesh then like peter who boasted that though all forsook the lord yet should not he so we shall certainly fail and fall apart from christ we can do nothing john fifteen five the promise of god is he giveth power to the faint and to them that have no might of their own he increases the strength isaiah forty twenty nine the question now before us is of great practical importance and we are deeply anxious to express ourselves clearly and simply the secret of development of christian character is the realization of our own powerlessness acknowledged powerlessness and the consequent turning unto the lord for help the plain fact is that of ourselves we cannot do this or make ourselves do it and nothing be anxious but who can avoid and prevent anxiety when things go wrong awake to righteousness and sin not but who can help sinning these are merely examples selected at random from scores of others does then god mock us by bidding us do what he knows we are unable to do the answer of augustine to this question is the best we have met with god gives commands we cannot perform that we may know what we ought to request from him a consciousness of our powerlessness should cast us upon him who has all power here then is where a vision and view of god's sovereignty helps for it reveals his sufficiency and shows our insufficiency two god's sovereignty and christian service if god has determined before the foundation of the world the precise number of those who shall be saved then why should we concern ourselves about the eternal destiny of those with whom we come into contact what place is left for zeal in the christian service will not the doctrine of god's sovereignty and its corollary of predestination discourage the lord's servants from faithfulness in evangelism no instead of discouraging his servants a recognition of god's sovereignty is most encouraging to them 
here is one for example who is called upon to do the work of an evangelist and he goes forth believing in the freedom of the will and in the sinner's own ability to come to christ he preaches the gospel as faithfully and zealously as he knows how but he finds the vast majority of his hearers are utterly indifferent and have no heart at all for christ he discovers that men are for the most part thoroughly wrapped up in the things of the world and that few have any concern about the world to come he beseeches men to be reconciled to god and pleads with them over their soul's salvation but it is of no avail he becomes thoroughly disheartened and asks himself what is the use of it all shall he quit or had he better change his mission and message if men will not respond to the gospel had he not better engage in that which is more popular and acceptable to the world why not occupy himself with humanitarian efforts with social uplift work with the purity campaign alas that so many men who once preached the gospel are now engaged in these activities instead what then is god's corrective for his discouraged servant first he needs to learn from scripture that god is not now seeking to convert the world but that in this age he is taking out of the gentiles a people for his name acts fifteen fourteen what then is god's corrective for his discouraged servant this a proper apprehension of god's plan for this dispensation again what is god's remedy for dejection at apparent failure in our labors this the assurance that god's purpose cannot fail that god's plans cannot miscarry that god's will must be done our labors are not intended to bring about that which god has not decreed once more what is god's word of cheer for the one who is thoroughly disheartened at the lack of response to his appeals and the absence of fruit for his labors this that we are not responsible for results that is god's side and god's business paul may plant and apollos may water but it is god who gave the increase first corinthians three six our business is to obey christ and preach the gospel to every creature to emphasize the whosoever believeth and then to leave the sovereign operations of the holy spirit to apply the word and quickening power to whom he wills resting on the sure promise of jehovah for as the rain cometh down and the snow from heaven and returneth not thither but watereth the earth and maketh it bring forth and bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth it shall not return unto me void but it shall accomplish that which i please it may not be that which we please and it shall prosper in the thing whereunto i sent it isaiah fifty five ten and eleven was it not this assurance that sustained the beloved apostle when he declared therefore see context i endure all things for the elect's sake second timothy two ten yea is this not the same lesson to be learned from the blessed example of the lord jesus when we read that he said to the people ye have also seen me and believe not he fell back upon the sovereign pleasure of the one who sent him saying all that the father giveth me shall come to me and him that cometh to me i will in no wise cast out john six thirty seven he knew that his labor would not be in vain he knew god's word would not return unto him void he knew that god's elect would come to him and believe on him and this same assurance fills the soul of every servant who intelligently rests upon the blessed truth of god's sovereignty ah fellow christian worker god has not sent us forth to draw a bow at a venture the success of the ministry which he has committed into our hands is not left contingent on the fickleness of the wills in those to whom we preach how gloriously encouraging 
how soul-sustaining the assurance are those words of our lords if we rest on them in simple faith and other sheep i have have mark you not will have have because given to him by the father before the foundation of the world which are not of this fold i e the jewish fold then existing them also i must bring and they shall hear my voice john ten sixteen not simply they ought to hear my voice not simply they may hear my voice not they will if they are willing there is no if no uncertainty about it they shall hear my voice is his own positive unqualified absolute promise here then is where faith is to rest continue your quest dear friend after the other sheep of christ's be not discouraged because the goats heed not his voice as you preach the gospel be faithful be scriptural be persevering and christ may even use you to be his mouthpiece in calling some of his lost sheep unto himself therefore my beloved brethren be ye steadfast unmovable always abounding in the work of the lord for as much as ye knew that your labor is not in vain in the lord first corinthians fifteen fifty eight it now remains for us to offer a few closing reflections and our happy task is finished god's sovereign election of certain ones to salvation is a merciful provision the sufficient answer to all the wicked accusations that the doctrine of predestination is cruel horrible and unjust is that unless god had chosen certain ones to salvation none would have been saved for there is none that seeketh after god romans three eleven this is no mere inference of ours but the definite teaching of the holy scripture attend closely to the words of the apostle in romans nine where this theme is fully discussed though the number of the children of israel be as the sand of the sea a remnant shall be saved and as isaias isaiah said before except the lord of sabaoth had left us a seed we had been as sodom and been made like unto gomorrah romans nine twenty seven twenty nine the teaching of this passage is unmistakable but for divine interference israel would have become as sodom and gomorrah had god left israel alone human depravity would have run its course to its own tragic end but god left israel a remnant or seed of old the cities of the plain had been obliterated for their sin and none was left to survive them and so it would have been in israel's case had god not left or spared a remnant thus it is with the human race but for god's sovereign grace in sparing a remnant all of adam's descendants had perished in their sins therefore we say that god's sovereign election of certain ones to salvation is a merciful provision and be it noted in choosing the ones he did god did no injustice to the others who were passed by for none had any right to salvation salvation is by grace and the exercise of grace is a matter of pure sovereignty god might save all or none many or few one or ten thousand just as he saw best should it be replied but surely it were best to save all the answer would be we are not capable of judging we might have thought it best to never have created satan never to have allowed sin to enter the world or having entered to have brought the conflict between good and evil to an end long before now ah god's ways are not ours and his ways are past finding out god foreordains everything which comes to pass his sovereign rule extends throughout the entire universe and is over every creature for of him and through him and to him are all things romans eleven thirty six god initiates all things regulates all things and all things are working unto his eternal glory there is but one god the father of whom 
are all things and we in him and one lord jesus christ by whom are all things and we by him first corinthians eight six and again according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will ephesians one eleven surely if anything could be ascribed to chance it is the drawing of lots and yet the word of god expressly declares the lot is cast into the lap but the whole disposing thereof is of the lord proverbs sixteen thirty three god's wisdom in the government of our world shall yet be completely vindicated before all created intelligences god is no idle spectator looking on from a distant world at the happenings on our earth but is himself shaping everything to the ultimate promotion of his own glory even now he is working out his eternal purpose not only in spite of human and satanic opposition but by means of them how wicked and futile have been all efforts to resist his will shall one day be as fully evident as when of old he overthrew the rebellious pharaoh and his hosts at the red sea it has been well said the end and object of all is the glory of god it is perfectly divinely true that god hath ordained for his own glory whatsoever comes to pass in order to guard this from all possibility of mistake we have only to remember who is this god and what the glory that he seeks it is he who is the god and father of our lord jesus christ of him in whom divine love came seeking not her own among us as one that serveth it is he who sufficient in himself can receive no real accession of glory from his creatures but from whom love as he is light cometh down every good and every perfect gift in whom there is no variableness nor shadow of turning of his alone can his creature give to him the glory of such a one is found in the display of his own goodness righteousness holiness truth in manifesting himself as in christ he has manifested himself and will forever the glory of this god is what of necessity all things must serve adversaries and evil as well as all else he has ordained it his power will ensure it and when all apparent clouds and obstructions are removed then shall he rest rest in his love forever although eternity will only suffice for the apprehension of the revelation god shall be all in all italics hours throughout the paragraph gives in six words the ineffable result f w grant on atonement that what we have written gives but an incomplete and imperfect presentation of this most important subject we must sorrowfully confess nevertheless if it results in a clearer apprehension of the majesty of god and his sovereign mercy we shall be amply repaid for our labors if the reader has received blessing from the perusal of these pages let him not fail to return thanks to the giver of every good and every perfect gift ascribing all praise to his inimitable and sovereign grace the lord our god is clothed with might the winds and waves obey his will he speaks and in the shining height the sun and rolling worlds stand still rebel ye waves and o'er the land with threatening aspect foam and roar the lord hath spoken his command that breaks your rage upon the shore ye winds of night your force combine without his holy high behest you shall not in a mountain pine disturb the little swallow's nest his voice sublime is heard afar in distant peals it fades and dies he binds the cyclone to his car and sweeps the howling murky skies great god how infinite art thou what weak and worthless worms are we let all the race of creatures bow and seek salvation now from thee eternity with all its years stands ever present to thy view to thee there's nothing old appears great god there can be nothing new our lives through varied scenes are drawn and vexed with mean and trifling cares while thine eternal thought moves on thy fixed and undisturbed affairs 
Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Revelation 19, 6. End of the conclusion.